And yes, it is I, Chuck Morse, every Thursday, 10 a.m. right here at WMFO, 91.5 FM, Medford, Somerville, Boston, Tufts University. Welcome to the program. Of course, you're welcome to join me. This is our online, or it is online, but this is our live old-fashioned radio program. And when I mean old-fashioned, I mean old-fashioned. I do, I'm old school here. I'm a community member. And um, I'd love to hear from you. You're welcome to join me. 855-915-9636. 855-915-9636. This is, um, again, yours truly, Chuck Morse. Um, radio, uh, former um, award-winning radio host, blogger, author, a columnist at Newsmax.com. I'm getting into all the newfangled uh, technologies with YouTube and um, getting the uh, podcast, which this program does podcast, up on um, iTunes and um, Stitcher and a whole list of other um, directories. Um, let's see, I'm just finishing, I'm putting to bed, as they say in the business, my book on the history of American assassination. A very interesting book. I've been working on it, I'd say, for the past maybe six, seven, eight months, very intensively. Um, and it's finally getting to bed, as they call it. Um, it's um, over 50,000 words. It's a pretty good-sized document. My literary agent tells me that this book has more commercial potential than many of my past books. Most of my books are self-published. They deal with philosophy, religion, politics, culture, law, and economy. I'm kind of all over the map. I find that writing is a great way to think through a, through a topic. It's a great way to learn because you go deep, you organize your thinking, and by putting it on paper, it's, it's an incredible and tremendous way to learn. And I think that um, probably most of you who are entering Tufts University, and that being in this next week or two, you've probably learned that from high school, that taking notes and writing things down is a great way to reinforce it into the memory and also to integrate it into your overall way of thinking. And if you haven't learned it, take note, literally. You know, I mean, it's a, just a great tool. To, uh, to develop your thinking. So I'm looking forward to seeing this book published. Um, I really have no way of knowing if it will be published. But again, my literary, if it, if it isn't, it will be self-published. So one way or the other, it's going to be published. But my literary agent tells me that this book has potential because it's about people uh, in history and their stories are interesting and sometimes a little tawdry. Um, and that's what people want. That's what the uh, public likes to read. If you take a look at, for example, uh, cop shows and uh, novels and fiction and uh, documentaries, it's all about this. Assassinations, uh, potential assassinations, plots, conspiracies to assassinate. And so I think I'm on to something with this book. I go all the way from... The famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and and, um, and Aaron Burr, whether or not that was an assassination or was it just a, a murder. And I bring it right up to the present time with the so-called Clinton hit list. Uh, this long list of people who had affiliations with Bill or Hillary Clinton 
and that they met an untimely demise long before their time. Was this some kind of a conspiracy on the part of the Clintons to commit murder of their opponents? I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but I think that as a, as a sort of a journalist and as an author doing uh, research on this general topic, it is my responsibility to investigate. And writing this book, I feel much more like an investigator, like a police detective, like Columbo, than in past books where I sort of uh, approached it more from a philosophical standpoint or a political standpoint. This time it's less philosophy, it's more skullduggery, it's more digging, more muckraking even, if you will, you know, to try to find what happened. And so I really haven't started yet the chapter on the Clintons. I'm just starting it this weekend, and I probably hope to have it finished sometime next week. And really, the book should be in the can by Labor Day, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be very close to that. I've got just a few more people I want to investigate after the Clinton hit list, uh, namely Andrew Breitbart, um, Tim Russert, and maybe um, Supreme Court Judge Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, to see if those deaths had anything to do with, with an assassination. But let me address the topic in general and what I'm thinking at this point. And that is that, of course, there are conspiracies to murder political figures. And that's what an assassination is. It is a political murder. You know, it's not just an ordinary murder where someone is knocked off because, you know, they've got insurance. So, you know, you want to collect money or it's not a crime of passion. You know, it's not the conventional murder that we, we know happens. It is a murder of someone who is in a position of power, whether it be political or cultural. And that the murder benefits not just the not necessarily, in fact, not even the person that commits the murder, but it has more to do with the benefiting of a political agenda. Either that person was promoting something in politics and culture that needed to be stopped, according to the people who committed the murder, or that person was standing in the way of something that needed to happen, according to the people who, or group of people who commit the murder. So, you know, it, it has more to do with the course of, of society, the course of politics, than it does with knocking off a person. And that in, as a rule of thumb, the, the conspiracy, and a conspiracy is nothing more than two or more people coming together in secret to, to um, plot a, uh, an act that is illegal, immoral, uh, subversive, unethical, um, in terms of what what exists in the power at the time, um, that that those who benefit from the conspiracy to murder, they don't necessarily need to murder the person that stands in the way. They can neutralize them by maybe destroying them politically, by discrediting them to the point where they're no longer effective in office, where they have to leave office. I mean, a case in point, I suppose you could say, would be the resignation of Richard Nixon. He was hounded from office. Why? We're not exactly sure. But his whatever he was doing at that time was neutralized without his having to, been, having to have been murdered. So 
you know, he was he was made, you know, whoever was behind it, and we don't know if there was anyone behind it. I'm not even claiming that. I didn't even look into that. But if so, you know, they neutralized him by making him resign from office. But but I'm looking more at actual either direct murders of a of a political figure. And most of these people are, frankly, presidents. Um, or the, um, you know, a plot to murder them that was unsuccessful or that or was uncovered in time. So it didn't happen. And um, it's really fascinating research. You know, it's a great way to um, get greater insight into the nature of American history. Um, now, as I'm researching this topic. And by the way, I mean, something I'm getting into right now um, is very troubling, and I'm just on the verge of getting into this. This is going to be the final, my, my final appendix to the book, and that is this phenomena of mind control or mind manipulation that may have occurred in the case of many of these murders, these assassinations. And I specifically, in that regard, would mention the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, the assassination attempt against President Ronald Reagan, and possibly the assassination of Martin Luther King. Those are cases that it seems to me have been argued and very well could be argued to be uh, cases where the assassin was a mind-manipulated robot, if you will someone who had been tampered with, someone who was susceptible to this sort of manipulation and was triggered to commit these murders. Uh, you'll have to read the book to get the details. Um, I derive my sources on this from a CIA uh, project which was put in place right after World War II called MKUltra. This was something that came out during uh, the church committee testimony in the early 1970s. And the CIA basically, frankly, destroyed the majority of the documents and the evidence about this project, but they didn't destroy everything. Um, and so what I'm saying here is not something, I'm, I'm not getting kooky here, you know, I'm, I'm not getting hinky. I'm not putting on some kind of tin hat. This is congressional testimony that there was in existence this thing called MKUltra and that this thing, this CIA project, indeed was experimenting with mind control and with the possibility of setting up a mind-controlled assassin. So, you know, this isn't me here. The popular movie, the Jason Bourne movies, starring Matt Damon, I haven't seen them, but apparently they deal with this topic in a fictional context. I guess that the character Jason Bourne is someone who had been a CIA agent who had been mind-tampered and who was try and who had been involved with some terrible uh, crimes and who was trying to recover his mind. Um, the assassin of Robert F. Kennedy, Sirhan Sirhan. There was a... Um, I mean, again, I'm gonna, you have to read my book to, to get the details and I'm not going to go too far here. But he was, he, he could not remember the events of the day, at least according to his testimony. Now, was he lying? Possibly. But 
there was a, um, a Harvard research psychiatrist on the staff over at Harvard who spent many, many countless hours with him in his cell, researching him, analyzing him, doing surveys. And the result is that they, dis- they were able to help him re- rediscover pieces of his memory. And I get into it in my book. You'll have to read the book. I'm not trying to sell books here. The book isn't even published, but there it is. But he was able to reconstruct somewhat of a scenario or pieces of a scenario that indicate that he had been tampered with, that there was someone there who used certain trigger words or trigger codes to, to make him do what he did. I mean, I think another example, possible example of this might have been the assassin of John Lennon. But that's, I don't go too far into that, but... Um, I bring this up for a specific reason and for a general reason. The specific reason is that former CIA or National Security NSA director James Clapper the other day made public comments on a show that can be accessed where he basically said that he believes, and I'm paraphrasing, that President Donald Trump should be made ineffective in office. In other words, he, he, he made shadowy, indirect references to possible assassination of Trump or neutralizing of Trump, somehow taking him out, making him go away, making him disappear. And uh, none other than President Barack Obama's chief of staff, Axelrod, actually called this out and said, you know, he found this troubling. He found this chilling. And, uh, and indeed it is. You know, this is something where, you know, you have a, a person who is a high-level figure in the so-called dark state, you know, basically saying that the president of the United States is going to be removed. Now, if that isn't a threat, I don't know what is. I think he should be charged with uh, crimes for this. You know, this is like, you know, there, there are laws against threatening the life of a president. Now, I don't know if technically what he said crosses that bridge, but it certainly should be looked at. It was pretty ugly. But yet I was listening to the liberal media yesterday, as I do every day, and to the degree that they even commented on this, they were like, oh, yes, look at this, another proof of Donald J. Trump is evil, and we have to get rid of President Trump, and blah, 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 right? They didn't quite get the fact that this was a threat, and even if they did, they were not willing to, they didn't have the integrity to discuss it, because it might feed into a narrative that isn't trying to destroy the president. And I think that these people who are not looking at this are fully witting and are fully conscious of, of what they're involved in. They do want to take out Trump in any way possible. They will pull any kind of a stunt to try to neutralize, to discredit, to pull the rug out from under Donald Trump. They don't like the fact he was elected, and they want to reverse that election by any means possible, including, you know, the aforementioned. 
And so they're looking the other way while this comment is made. So I'll ask the question, why is that? You know, I've asked this question before on this program. And the answer is quite simple. And the answer is basically similar to the answer of why would someone have wanted to take out President John F. Kennedy or Robert F. Kennedy or Ronald Reagan or any of the other presidents or leaders or Martin Luther King or other leaders who were targeted for assassination. Franklin Roosevelt, I, I uncovered in my book, and you'll have to read the book, four conspiracies to assassinate Roosevelt. Three of which, well, two of which were didn't go off because they were exposed. One of which resulted in shots fired and killing the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, who was sitting right next to Roosevelt at the time. And the fourth one is something that I think might have been. That's, that's, that's a theory of mine. But nevertheless, they all have to do with the same trend that, that is in place with regard to these other assassinations. And that is, on the surface, that this particular political figure either was standing in the way of someone else's idea of progress or they were engaging in progress in a way that was detrimental to those who wanted to stop progress. More fundamentally, I think I have discerned a pattern with regard to people who have been targeted for assassination or who were assassinated, going back to Alexander Hamilton, including several presidents who have not been listed as assassinated, but who very well may have been, as I illustrated in my book, namely William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor, both of whom I make the case were likely assassinated, and it was covered up by stories that, that would lead us to believe that they died of natural causes. That there is a, a thread of similarity in all these cases, and that is that every one of these leaders was an advocate of what I call loosely the American Project. The American Project was first articulated by Alexander Hamilton, who was murdered and assassinated, I believe, because of this articulation. And I make that case. And that every one of these men, all the way up through the Kennedys, right up to Reagan, right up to today, President Donald Trump, every one of these men has been involved in this so-called American project and that there are forces of afoot in this country and in this world who don't want that project to go forward. They want to stop the project. They want to maybe keep the, the window dressing, but they don't want the actual project to go forward. So they kill these people or they neutralize them as they did in the case of Nixon. So... What is the American project? I would argue that the American project is one that specifically advances the agenda of the American Republic, but more generally advances the civilization of the planet. In terms of the American Republic, it is the project of placing the interest, and this sounds simplistic, it sounds almost like a campaign slogan, and in fact it was a campaign slogan for, for Trump, 
but it's more transcendent than that. And it is the idea of putting America first. It's a simple idea. It's a logical idea. It is an idea that basically is one by which it gets to the very fundamental reason of why we as a people establish nations, why a nation exists, why national sovereignty exists, to place the interests of the people of that nation first, collectively. In the same way that we as individuals place our own interests first, individually. You know, when you go outside every day, you're placing your interests first, your safety first, your success first. You know, when you do homework, when you're learning something, you're doing it because you want to do it, but you're also doing it because you're out of self-interest. You believe that it's going to advance your life, make you more materially prosperous, more happy. Um, you know, it's going to create more individualism. It's going to create more individual sovereignty, your ability to be free, in other words. You know, you want to improve the world, which is something that may seem on the surface like it's not putting yourself first, but it is part of human nature. We want to have an impact on this planet in this short lifetime of ours. We want to know that we did something to improve life. It's natural. You know, we want to help others because we want to do it. It's a natural thing to want to do, and that's why most people do it. That's why in a free society, more people help than in any other society because this is a part of human nature. We put ourselves first. As I've mentioned, the animal kingdom understands this. You know, the beaver puts their dam before first. You try to, in, you know, you try to invade it, you're going to get in trouble. You know, I mean, they, they, private ownership of property is a, is a fundamental tool of establishing your ability to be free, of putting yourself first. That's why, as I say, a beaver builds a dam or a bird builds a nest. That's their property in the de facto sense. And if you try to invade it, you're invading their property and you're going to feel the consequences. And plants understand this. You know, they compete for, for sunlight and some win and some lose. Some do better, some do worse. You know, I mean, it, it's just a part of existence. We establish our self-interest and we compete to advance that self-interest. The nation-state is no different. We set up a nation-state because we need some kind of an, an enterprise, some kind of a, an, an entity, an, an organization that represents all of us in the bigger picture and allows us to advance our individual freedoms in that context. And so the nation-state, and in, in our republic, which is something that Americans really patented in a way that was unprecedented, it's not the first time it happened. You could look at the Roman Republic, you could look at different Italian republics. But it was the first time it really happened in a, in a broad, formal sense. That we established a nation-state that would be accountable to the people through representative government, through elections. Thus, we can be as free as possible, free speech, free press, and by the way, free speech is being impinged on, but I'll get into that maybe later. Uh, the right to assemble, the right to um, redress of grievances, you know, a separate judiciary that, that uh, is not politically tainted, but that, that can adjudicate separately and independently 
allegedly, and certainly it's an imperfect system, but it's the best the world's ever known. And, and thus we establish, through all of these institutions of freedom, and through a very intricate condition of checks and balances, which checks and balances, as it says, the natural tendencies toward corruption, which is also part of the human experience, and power um, accumulation, so as to leave the ultimate power in the hands of the people and their government as a representative of the people, which has to be reelected so that if they become too corrupt, they could be swept out of office. Thus you have the American system, but the American system is also a system that once that government is established, it advances the interest of the people and of the world in a sense. I mean, um, Alexander Hamilton articulated this very well when he established a national currency. Now, we can debate whether or not it was a good idea to have a national bank. Uh, we, we should point out that Hamilton's national bank was a limited charter and that it was mostly owned by the government. That's a good thing because it means that the people and their Congress get to decide um, you know, how much currency is issued into the economy so that our value, our, our economic value, our, our currency value is a reflection of our production. I don't want to get too far into that. I wrote a whole book on this topic. It's, it's a fascinating subject. It has everything to do with freedom. And a lot of these assassinations, by the way, that I look at are connected to the struggle to, uh, for a national currency versus a currency that's controlled by private people, which is bad, in my opinion. So the American system has in place national institutions that provide for advancement over what individuals can do. Um, Hamilton established the, um, the Army Institution at West Point. He established the concept of building infrastructure that would go beyond states' borders, that would be a national infrastructure of roads, bridges, canals. Eventually that would mean airports and uh, advanced uh, transportation um, entities. Uh, all, in a sense, to develop the ability of the American citizen and the American business, which is nothing more than a group of citizens getting together to create a good or a service, to realize their full potential. He put in place a system of tariffs, which is to say that American industry, American labor, American manufacturing, American agriculture, American products, American services would be protected from unfair foreign competition. This is a basic function of national sovereignty. The degrees of tariff, that's something that is debated by Congress. The U.S. Congress, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4, has the right to regulate tariff and trade. That's what our elected government is supposed to do. And they're supposed to do it in a way that benefits American labor and industry. American labor has been, over the past hundred years, has advanced greatly by organizing, by forming unions. Um, 
Those unions have negotiated better working conditions, better salaries, better living conditions for their members. These things didn't just happen overnight. They happened over 100 years. That's something that Congress and our federal government needs to protect by preventing an overflow of foreign labor into the country. You know, labor is a commodity. The laborer is not a commodity. The laborer is a human being, which is never a commodity. But labor itself is a commodity in the same way that any product is a commodity and that it is thus subject to the vicissitudes of the free market, of the what Adam Smith called the hidden hand of the market. But free trade needs to be, in a national sense, monitored by and regulated by the government to ensure that those great gains that were made by American labor at great sacrifice and American manufacturing and American industry and American invention, that these things are protected. So we have sovereign nations. We have a sovereign nation. The American system is one by which the, the olive branch of freedom and friendship and peace are extended to the nations of the world, and yet we are not involved in foreign adventures, colonialism, nation building, which is what they call it now. It's the same thing. Um, Americans have rejected that. Hamilton rejected it. Many of the presidents and leaders who were assassinated rejected it. Now, that's not to say that the American borders didn't need to be adjusted. I don't think anyone denies um, the fact that uh, President Thomas Jefferson did the right thing by, by engaging the Louisiana Purchase, or James K. Polk didn't do the right thing by securing the border with Mexico. These were disputed borders. Thus, we did this. We, we, we established the American border. But beyond that, the American tradition has not been to engage in, in foreign adventures and in foreign colonialism. Um, you know, there, it's not to say we never did it. I mean, one example would be the occupation of the Philippines, which is something that Americans were never happy with. We never were comfortable with it. Um, and that it ran against American values. But part of the American system thus is and was articulated by President George Washington in his farewell address, where he said that we would avoid entangling alliances. We would reach out a hand of friendship, but we would avoid entangling alliances. The other part of, of the American system is a sense of, of national cohesion, of cultural cohesion. Not because we're better than any other nation, not out of a sense of chauvinism, but simply out of a sense that uh, for the same reason that we want to have a national cohesion culturally, every other nation does and should. You know, you have a national cohesion in Zimbabwe. You have a national cohesion in, you know, in um, Cambodia. You have a national cohesion in Bolivia. You know, that's part of the nation state. And in America, that I frankly means English as the national language. Um, and and um, 
and, and an advocacy of American culture first. George Washington discussed this in his farewell address, where, and again, I'm paraphrasing, it's worth reading, by the way, that while he respected the fact that we had different religions and different faiths and different manners, as he called them, that reflected cultures that, that, that had settled here from other countries. Um, you know, you had German populations in, in, in Pennsylvania. You know, you had Dutch populations in New York. You had different ethnicities. And, of course, that would increase to, as in today's world. That, nevertheless, these different ethnicities and these different races and these different religions would put the American ethos first. They would be Americans first. That's an American ethos, one that's natural, one that exists in any nation, and one that's entirely appropriate for the future. We don't want to be, we don't want to have a balkanized society. We want to have a cohesive society. Anyway, there are other aspects of the American system that promote and advocate and advance human freedom, human development through individual rights, the advancement of civilization through technologies, through science, through culture. And the undertone of powers, and this is, again, I'm not here to talk about some crazy conspiracy theory. I'm not putting on a tin hat here. I'm making some general observations that emanated from my research on this book that will be hopefully published very soon. I'll, I'll keep people up to date. But it is that the enemies of the American system, those who did not advocate the advancement of sovereignty as a nation, those who did not advocate industry and individual freedom and, and education and the ability of the family to have sovereign rights and, and, and obtain the necessary material capital for them to advance their interests, self-interest. The enemies of this, those who want to turn us back for lack of a better word, into a more collectivist condition, which is the condition of ancient man before the development of individual identity, even. Those who want us to sacrifice our freedom under the marketing idea that it is somehow good for someone else, that we can't make these decisions on our own in terms of how we help other people. We have to sacrifice the word sacrifice is key. That we need to, to, in a sense, turn over our sovereign rights to this very nebulous and undefined elite. Um, what Whitaker Chambers, in his book Witness, called a conspiracy of gentlemen. These top one percenters, wealthiest of people, people who are powerful but yet are very corrupt and not all powerful people are but there is a, definitely a tendency among some to become 
that they believe that they need to steward over the planet, that we cannot, we'll, they, they don't trust or we cannot engage in sovereignty, self-sovereignty, self-control, self-determination. We don't have the ability to determine our own destinies because we're not smart enough or we're not enlightened enough to do it. And so they feel entitled to step in and use the levers of power to control the system. They're control freaks. They want to control information. I mean, take a look at the definition of socialism if you want to see control. Public ownership of the means of production. Public ownership of the means of communication. Public ownership of the means of distribution. What does that mean? State ownership. In other words, the government owns everything. That's not what Hamilton had in mind. That's not what Washington had in mind. They saw the government as being a tool that would enhance certain aspects of our life so that we could become more free. You know, I mean, on the other, on the other side of the coin, of course, you have the radical libertarians and anarchists who want no government. That's almost as bad. That's not progress. That's not the American system. But the people who advocate for this control, this collectivizing of the human race, which is a backward step, a step back into ancient times, and they do it under the guise of progress, they use their power and their, their wealth, quite frankly, to promote and market this idea that somehow this is something new that somehow we need to give up our freedoms so that they can obtain sovereignty over us for our own good. Why? Because they're going to do good for others, because they're going to help the world, because they have some kind of a demented utopian view that they can create this perfect universe. And what is that perfect universe? That perfect universe is a planet that looks like an ant colony where everyone becomes de facto equal where we're all tied to nature just like animals where we all are part of a system a machine by which we've surrendered everything that makes us different everything that makes us unequal everything that makes us unique and that includes family love personal commitment property the right to trade goods and services freely the right to own, you know, the right to own your hubcaps. I mean, it's just everything. Because anything that you do that involves these things, religion, of course, which Marx said was the opiate of the masses, any of these things create inequality, and we can't have that. And so we give up our freedoms. Now, they're not going to come out and tell you this, and they don't even know it consciously. But it's, it's a, a kind of an undercurrent that has tried to, in every generation, pull this country down, and in every generation in the, in the history of man, pull man down from progress, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I use that as a metaphor. What do I mean by the Garden of Eden? Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden? The serpent came to Eve who was living with Adam in a sinless universe 
and tempted her to take a bite of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. What was the tree of knowledge? The tree of knowledge was the tree by which its secrets would be revealed to the partaker and they would then know all the secrets of the universe. They would know the true meaning of good and evil. In other words, they would become like God. There would be no more separation. There would be no more mystery. They would not have to accept this idea that we really don't know what God is, you know, in the real sense, that we don't know what's going to happen to us when we pass away. We don't know the meaning of life. We're no, no closer to that today than we ever were. But by partaking in the tree of the forbidden fruit, the forbidden fruit, the tree of, of, of knowledge, the serpent promised Eve that she and Adam could know these secrets, that they could become God. They could overthrow God in heaven. Of course, it was a lie, because the serpent himself, who, is represent, who represents Satan, wanted to overthrow God in heaven, because he had been the, the, um, the banished angel, the dark angel. And so he tempted Eve. He, um, you know, he used his marketing campaign to tempt Eve. And Eve fell for it. She took the fruit and gave one to Adam. And thus they, they fell into sin. And they were set back. Um, society was set back as a result. And they knew less than they had known before. There was a bigger barrier between the Lord our God and, and man. And that uh, they would then be sub more subjected to the vicissitudes of life. They would not have eternal life. Uh, Eve would have pain in childbirth. They would be banished from the Garden of Eden, and they would have to go out and make a living and uh, deal with all the pain of existence, which we continue to deal with. Now, it is our obligation, of course, as human beings, to try to improve the planet, to try to have a more prosperous world, one where we can live longer, where we can be healthier, we, we can get fatter, where we could be freer. And we've striven to do that ever since. But the serpent is with us in every generation as well. The serpent is there hearkening us to give them power. Take a bite of the forbidden fruit. You don't have to worry about about your own life. You don't have to deal with the pain of existence and the, and the traumas and the, the, the disappointments and the regrets and, the, and the, the other vicissitudes that are part of human life. If you only take a bite of this apple because we will create the perfect universe. We will make you into gods. We are gods. God has forsaken you. I realize I'm getting a little a little philosophic here. Maybe I'm just feeling this way because of contemplating you know, the kids coming back to college and you know people I know going to college this year and for the first time. And uh, 
you know, it sort of makes me maybe a little bit more reflective, I guess. But um, it also has to do, in my own sense, with my finishing my book on assassination, because I do think that people who have been assassinated in history, not just in American history, but probably in world history to a certain extent, have often been assassinated because they either were advancing these freedoms or because there were good people who wanted to stop them so that they could advance these freedoms. I mean, an obvious example of that would have been the assassination a plot against Hitler. I mean, I'm not suggesting that all assassinations are bad. Some are quite good. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that all conspiracies are bad. Some are quite good. Like, for example, the Boston Tea Party was a good conspiracy that would try to establish freedoms in America and did. What I'm suggesting is that in many cases that once you put aside cases of just sheer personal ambition, the conspiracy to assassinate a political leader had to do with the fact that the political leader had become a little too uppity. They had stepped off the they had either stepped off the reservation and had become advocates of the American system. They were suddenly doing things that they thought were in the interest of America. Or they were impeding it. And I think in the in the case of many modern assassinations, it was that they were advancing it. And to that I point to the the assassination of President Kennedy. One of the things I uncovered on that was, well, there were two things I uncovered that I think are significant in terms of getting to why Kennedy was assassinated. And, um, and I do think that it was a conspiracy. Uh, broadly speaking, I do think that it was a conspiracy by some of the same people who were conducting the MK Ultra project at the CIA. And by the way, the CIA, from its inception, was made up of very left liberal people who believed in moving the nation toward this sort of collective world order, this, um, this amorphous collectivism that is completely contrary to the American system of national sovereignty and of a nation operating in the interests of its people. And that um, in the case of Kennedy, it had to do with the fact there were two things I uncovered. And I'm not going to go too far. You'll have to read the book. But Kennedy gave a speech in the first months of his presidency. And this is something that I took right from the archive of the Kennedy Library. So I'm not making this up. It's very well documented. And I'm not going to read it. You'll have to check it out yourself. I'm going to paraphrase he warned the American people about the existence of secret societies and how damaging and dangerous it was for people to be taking oaths to these societies and putting their interests over that of their own country and their own family and even their own lives. And we can take a look at, we don't know exactly what Kennedy was talking about, but we can take a look at one secret society that has been partially exposed 
as an example, maybe one of the most egregious examples, but nevertheless an example of what he might have been talking about, and that would be the Skull and Bone Society at Yale University. Now, I'm not here to condemn all secret societies. I actually think that most of them are generally good. Uh, I think the Masonic groups are good. You know, they, they, they embed, they, they improve the lives of their members. They, it's a good place to network and develop a business and social contacts. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. My father was a Mason. I remember going to Masonic um, children's events as a, as a young person. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, my father dropped out of it. He lost interest, but that's putting that aside. He had nothing against it, and it was fine. I'm talking about certain ones that are more secretive and are more elite, like Skull and Bones, where part of the initiation ritual is that you have to sit in a crypt naked and reveal secrets about yourself, uh, information about yourself, that might be used later as blackmail. And that the idea is that you are taking... Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a blood oath, but it's an oath that you would put the interests of this society and the the directives of the society over that of your own country, your own life, your own family. That's a fact. That's been revealed. And so, you know, Kennedy was calling this out in this speech. He was saying that there is a this is a tradition that runs contrary to American traditions. Now, again, this isn't against all secret societies. George Washington was a member of a Masonic Lodge, and they were a good group that helped build the city of Washington, that, that had ideas of, of, um, of you know, civil rights and, and individual rights. They, 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 they fostered a better atmosphere, in my opinion. He was simply warning that Secrecy had developed at a certain level where it had become dangerous. President Eisenhower, who I think was part of this establishment and who was not really an American system guy, frankly, he nevertheless blew the whistle on it in his final farewell address, which he delivered on the eve of his leaving office, January 19, 1960, 61 where he warned the American people about this so-called military-industrial complex. He didn't talk about what he meant, but I think that's what he was getting at. You know, it was President Truman who, in the spirit of well-meaning, set up the national security apparatus. Um, that included CIA, National Security Agency, NSA, and the National Security Council. This agency has become huge since then. It has grown exponentially. Um, Professor Glennon, right here at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, has talked about this in, in a book he wrote about, wrote about it called The Double Government, where he points out that these national security agencies, all secret, have become so powerful that they employ millions of people. They have off-the-record uh, black-op uh, financial entities. They own businesses. 
They don't, they're not answerable to Congress. And that they have agents who are deeply embedded into all branches of the government, including the Supreme Court. Well, it was this agency that many conspiracy theorists believe had a hand in the Kennedy assassination because Kennedy wanted to expose them, as he said in that speech. And secondly, because Kennedy, in an off-the-record interview with Walter Cronkite, held in September of 1963 on the lawn of the Hyannis Port compound, much of which was classified or did not be, was not released until maybe 30, 40 years later, Kennedy expressed his, his um, intention to de-escalate the war in Vietnam. He felt that if the Vietnamese people don't have the will to fight for their own independence, then it wasn't anything we could do. It was a waste of our lives, our money, our time, and that he would pull out. And in fact, he already made moves toward doing just that before he was assassinated. Um, there were some other things that Kennedy did. I'm not going to get into it, uh, but uh, I do in my book, that were very threatening to this sort of, I don't know, I guess you might call it the liberal Eastern Seaboard establishment. Kennedy started to think that he really was the President of the United States, that he really could conduct affairs in a way that was in the interest of the American people. And so it was concluded that he had to be stopped. Now, I get into some of these things, and it's interesting. In my chapter on Kennedy, I also get into how the assassination was covered up by uh, looking at what I call the Kennedy hit list. But I think that possibly the same thing happened to Robert Kennedy only because Robert Kennedy knew about this to a certain extent. He understood that his brother had been assassinated by this conspiracy and that he had stated on a couple of occasions that if he was elected president, he would expose it. Of all people, Jimmy Carter, I discovered a fascinating plot against Carter, that Jimmy Carter, who would want to assassinate Jimmy Carter, the ultimate insider, the ultimate team player, member of the Trilateral Commission, all of his cabinet were, you know, Rockefeller people. I mean, they were all part of this idea of turning America into a province of the world, you know, tearing down America's borders, you know, free trade, immigration, all this whole agenda of weakening our national sovereignty and our national identity. But yet Jimmy Carter suddenly went on record as saying that he felt that we had to open the case of the Kennedy assassination because to understand that, we would understand who really runs the show and get to the corruption that has seeped into our government. Well, guess what happened to Jimmy Carter? It was within a month or two after making that statement that all of a sudden there was these guys picked up at an event he was to attend in Los Angeles who, um, who was setting up an assassination, or at least allegedly. Their names 
were Raymond Lee Harvey and Oswaldo um, Cortez, or some, I don't know his last name, Ortiz. Get it? Lee Harvey and Oswaldo? Was somebody trying to tell Jimmy Carter, send Jimmy Carter a message? I mean, these two vagrants, and they were like, basically two homeless guys. One of them was an illegal alien from Mexico. The other was this bum, this homeless guy, Lee Harvey. They were briefly detained, and then they were let go, and they did, they vanished. There's no trace of them. Now, to my way of thinking, this was a, a shot across, a proverbial shot across Jimmy Carter's bow. In other words, you better get in line. You're not going to do this. Get back into the program. And, of course, after that, you didn't hear a peep out of Carter. Carter got right back into a practically, you know, at, at that point, he did nothing else. His presidency was practically over. And I think the same thing happened with Reagan, why he was shot. I think there was evidence that John Hinckley was mind-manipulated by some groups. I get into it in my book. You'll have to read the book. We're reaching the end of the program. Um, I'm going to finish up by just saying that I find the, the, this comment by James Clapper, who is the ultimate dark state operative against President Trump, to be very ominous. And I would ask you, the listener, whether you, whatever you may think of President Trump, you may be the biggest, most dyed-in-the-wool, you know, hardcore Trump hater around. But do you really want to see the President of the United States taken out of power? He was elected. Get over it. You may not like him. We can work against him. But that's not the way to go. That's not the solution to that question. So I'd ask you to think about that. Um, Zach has just entered. Zach, how are you? How are you doing, Chuck? What's, what's going on today, Zach? Oh, you know, typical music talk. The usual music and talk. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> You'll see what happens. Okay. Well, then, I guess I want to thank everybody for joining me this afternoon. Uh, God willing, I shall return next Thursday at 10 a.m. If I'm not on the air anymore for some reason, and you never know, you can check out my podcast, which continues at Chuck Moore Speaks, and my column is at newsmax.com. My book is going to be put to bed, I think, right by Labor Day, and I'll let people know how, if and how that uh, they can get that. Um, I'm, uh, my, my agent tells me that it has a good chance of being published, so I'm pretty excited about that. But even if it isn't, it'll be self-published. I mean, with technology being what it is today and media, you can go on and on and on, and they can't stop you. So anyways, uh, Zach, what do, I, what do I do here? I just uh, put up. Put, put up what? Do seven. Do number seven. I'm still learning this stuff. Police. And there it is. Thank you. Hi, this is the Guitar Circle New England, and you're listening to Freeform Radio, 91.5 FM, WMFO Medford. <laughs>